the uh, winter's retreat is near, is about half over. This is the seventeenth of February. So it's uh, the special conditions that arise for this. It is an opportunity to in explore and investigate the Dhamma <clears throat> in, without a lot of other distractions or responsibilities. But then also allow for distractions and because <clears throat> that's part of human experience. And we set up conventions and situations, but then, you know, they, we have to deal with the actual flow of life as it happens to us. It's when we get into controlling, wanting things, we idealize a situation and then try to control it to fit into our desire. <clears throat> so observe this the desire to control things. It's, uh, I put it under the bhavadana, vipavadana desires. And just watching this in myself, wanting certitude, wanting stability, wanting uh, to control things, to keep everything under control. Because this is very much our cultural conditioning. We're from a society where this is what it does. It's, it's a very controlling, you know, trying to establish laws, rewards, punishments, uh, do's and don'ts. And the attitude, you know, the present time is to is very much to control things, trying to destroy, as they call the war on terrorism, is uh, trying to destroy terrorism. Is it really, you know, it's part of that desire to control things, get rid of your enemy. <clears throat> Well, we do it all the time ourselves in our own ways until we, you know, we awaken to the suffering that this causes. We create fear and, and no matter how much you can control things, there's always something happening that you can't control. So in uh, mindfulness, this sense of openness, receptivity, welcoming, uh, it's not, not a controlling, not asking you to control or force any situation. It's an attitude of openness, of listening, receiving. And of course, this is opposite to the whole personality view and the cultural conditioning. So the Sakya Ditti Silabhatabhamasa Vitikecha, the fetters, the first three fetters, just penetrating those, seeing them for what they are. It's not a, trying to get rid of them or uh, you know, something wrong but noticing and understanding. So in a receptive attitude, you're, you're recognizing Sakya is like this, Siddhapattabharamasa is like this, Vichikicca is like this. So 
So Vichikhija is doubt, and doubt is a state of mind we don't like. We like certitude. Tell me everything is all right, even if it isn't. I've heard myself thinking this. Please say everything is fine. I don't, and if it isn't, I don't want to hear about it. Because when things aren't fine, when things aren't okay, when there's problems, then I feel, I feel upset and doubtful and lose confidence and think, oh, there's trouble, life is a problem, sangha, monks, nuns, Buddhism, England, Europe, America, <laughs> the, the environment, <laughs> the planetary system. <laughs> Where does it stop? You know, the, this, uh, when, we, when, we, when we can't see beyond this, then when we're caught in this, in, in this limitation of wichikicha, doubt, then there's always a desire for, you know, certainty. And so in the Buddha, this is one of the, you know, the, the Buddha used this in a very direct way. In not trying to answer all the questions and solve every problem, but pointing to what you can actually witness at any moment. The, the nature of doubt is like this. Not knowing, uncertainty, indecision is like this. So in my own practice, I caught on to this very quickly because I'm a great uh, doubter by, as a personality. <clears throat> Skeptic. I tend to, to tend towards cynicism and skepticism. If you notice my sense of humor is slightly cynical. I think life is absurd. I don't, you know, I think being a human being is an absurdity. I think I'm an absurdity as a person. And pretentiousness of monasticism is funny. Like yesterday the nuns gave me this calendar about laughing nuns and things like this. This is absurd, isn't it? Because nuns, you kind of think of are women that take themselves incredibly seriously, holy, saintly, you know, dead serious women dedicated to purity and holiness and saintliness. And when you carry this kind of thinking too far, it's, it's, uh, you can only laugh at it because it's so pretentious, so out of focus and, and ridiculous. It's like these, these kind of kitsch postcards of saints, women, you know, saintly women with eyes filled with devotion looking upward to heaven. <clears throat> so the thinking itself you know, with, with, when you, one who does take the conditioned realm very seriously, uh, and then of course it gets into fanaticism and, and humorlessness, where, you know, my life is a terribly important experience and my views and our way you know, our way of practice, our group, our tradition, 
and this uh, this is where humor is helps to put this into perspective. The, the kind of way that we can hold on to the good, the saintly, the the purity of a tradition, the goodness of a tradition. All this is, you know, in many ways, you know, uh, seems like a a good thing to do. Like wanting to be good and trying to to uh, make yourself terribly, terribly good. Never think a, a bad thought about anybody. And uh, always be incredibly kind and sweet as a, as a kind of determination of controlling the mind. is an absurdity, isn't it? It's ridiculous. So, in, in this awareness practice, <clears throat> then this allows for the flow and movement of the conditioned realm to be what it is. It's non-control. It's not controlling anything. It's allowing conditioned phenomena to be what it is. And that's, you know, the, the the body, the the uh, mental states, feelings, the five khandhas, six ayatanas, putting it in, in, into these these uh, categories. But it, uh, all conditions are impermanent, and all dhamma is not self. Now, just cynicism and criticism and negative humor, dark humor, and and uh, so forth is, you know, that that also leads to suffering. Because just being cynical and and seeing everything in terms of absurdity or pretentiousness, falsity, one just comes to conclusions that that everything is just a farce or there's no honest good person in the world and everything we do is just for selfish reasons. So in that way, that gets depressing. One gets very down and depressed and, you know, there's nothing to live for. So, but that's the other extreme of the, uh, of, you know, we must be good and nice and worship God and obey the rules and, and be kind to everybody and smile all the time. And the opposite is, is, uh, is just the other side of the coin, where the awareness is not taking sides. It accepts the the whole coin, the both sides of it. Non preferences. Now that can only when you try to think about that, then you, you do get confused because the thinking process is about is 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 that way. It's when you think that you divide as good, bad, right, wrong. But non-thinking, but an awareness, is not divisive. So really notice this awareness you know, like, like, contemplate it. Like for myself, I mean, this is awareness. <coughs> now, I've been doing this for so many years, and, it, you know, it's, it's a natural state, so it, it's, uh, it doesn't, isn't, isn't difficult. But, uh, at first, it, 
it was because uh, you know I try I, the tendency was always to to try to figure things out <clears throat> with with words or with the Buddhist concepts, trying to fit experience always into the the forms the conventional forms, and that can be quite interesting. I mean, having been brought up as a Christian, also there's you know. A, interest in trying to figure out what Christianity really means. <clears throat> As I began to understand the nature of the mind and that then I could look at Christianity in a different way than just the 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 total blind acceptance of it unquestioningly or the total rejection of it, which was what had happened before. You know, as a child you just accepted the whole lot. Whatever you parents told you, the priest said, you just never questioned it. And then when you get into your, the adolescent, the questioning stage, then, then a lot of what you've assumed or what you've been told, you, you, don't, you can't uh, agree with anymore. So the tendency to reject it. <clears throat> and that's what... Uh, I found, you know, so I've always felt Christianity demanded this kind of blind acceptance, unquestioningly, undoubting, total commitment to what somebody tells you. And so then the, then the logic is, well, I'm not going to do that, so I have to reject the whole law. Then in the... In, taking an interest in uh, Buddha's teaching because it offers this perspective, this awareness where the positive negative are seen in terms of what they are. <clears throat> and all positive conditions, all negative conditions are impermanent. So this awareness of impermanence is a different is, is intuition rather than than thought. To just go around thinking everything is impermanent is not going to liberate you whatsoever. So in exploring, I can be pasana when you're exploring the the the, the Ayatanas, six ayatanas. I used to just contemplate, you know, the, you know, just be aware of the, of having eyes. This, even though, you know, this was, seems quite an obvious fact. Of course, I have eyes, but to really notice, to be aware of eyes, my own eyes, as experience right now. This would never have occurred to me, because <laughs> it's has a, you know it's an unquestioned assumption you know that and you look in the mirror and I can see reflection of my eyes in a mirror, but there's mindfulness then you know awareness and just taking the the subject of eyes. The experience of eyes, the organ of the physical organ, and then the object, and then the consciousness that arises. Just exploring that, you know how the 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 senses work. Just getting to notice. So in vipassana uh, meditation, you know you're paying attention to something so obvious and it happens automatically anyway. You know, it doesn't mean you have to know this. You can still, you can still, you know, live, you still can live to a ripe old age totally deluded. <clears throat> so, <laughs> and just operating on the, on the condition level of just grasping your views and opinions and, and the self-views and the sakyatiti, sila patabharamasa, 
as your real world. But in uh, Vipassana, you're, you know, those that approach Vipassana really no longer can do that. There's something in us that wants to understand on a deeper level, wants to find out. So in that kind of wanting to find out, it's kind of aspiring, isn't it? We have, as human beings, human individuals, there's part of us that, that wants to awaken or longs for the truth or completeness or wholeness. Is that desire? Is that dunha? You know, on a logical level, you think, well, that's, that's another desire. Wanting to be enlightened is another desire. And then, then we can, uh, you know, we have this view that desire is the cause of suffering. But now I'm using these thoughts more as a reflectiveness of that which, say, faith or something in us awakens. Or there's something that knows that it's not deluded, totally deluded by the conditioning, the cultural conditioning, by the party line, the, the socially accepted way of seeing life and seeing oneself. So you always have the rebels or anarchists or you know, in a society, try to, you know, that's why controlling societies do try to prevent these people, put them in prisons or, and you get in, you know, in totalitarian governments, these are the people they lock up in prison, send to Siberia, or, you know, try to <clears throat> kill them off or shut them up in some way, because they're dangerous. And so when you think of here in England, just several hundred years ago, we probably would have been hung for being Buddhists. Because Buddhism is a, is a bit of a threat, I think, to... <laughs> to the status quo, you know, and you're trying to control the population, keep them, you know, indoctrinated with with the religious teachings that cannot be questioned. But then in Buddhist countries you get at the same problem. You get into, you know, Buddhist orthodoxy. There's only one right way to interpret Buddhism and and if you challenge that, then you're, you know, you're, you're unorthodox or you're, you're wrong. <clears throat> because uh, grasping of the convention, isn't it? The, remember, Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism is a convention. And so we grasp the convention, meaning we don't, we don't use it for awareness, we merely uh, bind ourselves to it. It's not liberating either. So this uh, invitation, this winter's retreat is a kind of special occasion. I always value these, this time of the year because where, you know, North people don't have three months of their lives. They can devote totally to this, investigating in such a kind of, you know, where supported way and, and uh, with such conditions and encouragement to do so. So with Wichikicha or doubt, you know, the... Uh, given plenty of talks on this, on reflecting on doubt and pointing to, reiterating that it's think, if we attach to thinking, we end up with doubt. 
and so the, the thinking process, that's why I, I'm encouraging you to just observe what thinking is. Observe thinking. Don't think about thinking. Or try to figure it out. Observe, listen to yourself thinking. And think anything, you know, let your thinking be what it is, you know, it's reasonable or, or intelligent or, or selfish and stupid or positive or negative. Determine to be the listener, the one who listens, but, but non, non-critically. Like you're listening to somebody talking on the other side of the fence. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what they're saying. It's, they can say anything. You're just aware of that they're, what, you know, you're listening to the gossip or to the, whatever is happening, whatever they're talking about. <clears throat> so seeing the absurdity of self is uh, listening listening to, uh, you know, insights I've had, just listening to myself talk. So it is absurd. Like I remember, you know, wanting, you know, in, in, in a monastery, wanting peace and harmony and being head monk you know, being the senior monk and have a teacher and all this, you know, wanting everybody to be serious and practice hard, keep the vinaya, uh, not cause any problems, be dedicated and committed, not have them falling in love with people and, and, getting caught up with all kinds of worldly things and when you get monks and nuns living in the same monastery they'll they'll all end up falling in love with each other and disrobing and running away one absurd problem I people used to say you've got to totally separate them so that this does not happen we've got to control it And then, um, seeing anyone that, that questioned or, or, you know, was, wasn't, didn't quite go along, was, didn't quite fit in, uh, you know, as a problem, as a, as a threat. So bringing this into consciousness, listening to, to uh, you know myself, I'd think it out. Of when suddenly I'd felt very, you know, upset because uh, there was a problem. Somebody was, you know, there's some some difficulty in the sangha, some problem or some crisis, and then just you know feeling this sense of oh no, God I. Why can't people live in harmony? Why can't, you know, why can't they just shut up, watch their minds, practice, get enlightened, you know, doing everything. You've got this nice place and supported. Why can't they just get on with it? Then one of the things is when, when, you know, make a strong commitment. Like I, I made a strong commitment to, to uh, being a monk. So I, you know, I determined when I had this gratitude uh, after my sixth vasa, you know, I determined I was going to spend the rest of my life, uh, you know, being a monk, and as a way of kind of repaying as my debt to Lung Po Cha, 
And this was this is how you know the kind of it was kind of an uplifting inspired offering. You know, it was made from a kind of magnanimity and and a feeling of gratitude. <clears throat> And doing whatever needed to be done, so this was this was a kind of grand gesture. People born on the sign of Leo's are, are like to do make grand gestures. <laughs> and so then I made this gesture, and then and then I. You know, then I found myself, you know, Nana Chat, Hampstead Bihara, Chitters, Amravati. <laughs> you know, found myself, you know, in positions that, that, uh, you know, always were, were quite complicated. You know, with lots of people, people wanting things and, and expecting and, Having to find support and take on the meetings and and all kinds of worldly activities. <clears throat> so then, uh, and in doing this, you know, from the the magnanimity of this grand gesture, and also feeling on a personal level sometimes just very resentful. You know, because then you think, why can't everybody be make grand gesture? And and you know, then you feel really angry sometimes with people who who don't make, who don't have that, who don't think like that. They just think about, I want to practice. This isn't good enough here at Chitterst. I want to go somewhere else. Uh, uh, no, I don't want to be stores officer. I want to practice. And then another work day. All we ever do is work. I came here to practice. So listening to this inwardly, this, you know, my resentment. Because my magnanimous gesture was one thing, but then, then the uh, on a personal level, you know, there was uh, a lot of selfishness, not wanting, not wanting to be bothered, having to be bound into a group of people and 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 being uh, responsible for things. And still wanting to have time on my own, you know, to be able to go off into the Himalayas and meditate by the waterfall and live a quiet life writing Zen poetry. <laughs> and all the kind of confusion and detail, boring meetings. Endless meetings where everybody's giving forth their opinions and their feelings, and you sit there and listen, and it goes on and on and on. Some people love meetings; they just love them. Ajahn Nattapema, he, he just loved meetings. <laughs> when he was a monk, we had endless meetings. <laughs> and then you try to work out everything at a meeting, you know, trying to, the problems and, uh, of, you know, the personal problems and Sangha problems by discussing, endless discussions. And uh, we do develop patience. So I'd learned to sit there in the sound of silence, tune into this, and then I could kind of see this restlessness and resistance. 
<clears throat> wanting to get away from it, but also listening to to wanting, you know, wanting. You know, one day I just saw how feeling so resentful and kind of let me out of here. I don't want to be doing this kind of feeling. So then I started just breaking it, making it very conscious, like thinking, oh, I don't. I don't like this, I don't want to be here, all these people with their endless complaints and all these little things you have to do and and uh, nobody seems very grateful, you know, none of nobody seems to have made the commitment that I have. Uh, I have worked hard for the welfare of the Sangha and then, you know, all they end up is criticizing me and I carried it on like this into the kind of Jewish mother mode. (laughs) I devote my life to you, work hard, night and day, and all I get is a slap in the face. (laughs) Kind of... Woody Allen humor. <laughs> so this is, you know, but then it is it, taking it, deliberately thinking it to, to I want the world, I want you to not cause me any problems. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I want everything around me, you know, the, the country I'm in, the community I'm living with, everything to just live in a way that doesn't irritate or upset me or make me feel insecure. So I began to, you know, I realized how, what an absurd, taking it to, thinking it out to absurdity, you know, how ridiculous that really is. Asking for the impossible, you know, the the whole universe revolve around me and and not, not not irritate me or frustrate me or threaten me in any way is, the ultimate uh, kind of selfish megalomania, isn't it? I'm so important that the whole universe should arrange itself just so it, nothing upsets me or irritates me. Putting it like that, then, you know, and, you know, it's like listening to the, to the, the complaining mind, the grumbling, the whinging uh, self, the Sakyaditi. Now, not and and listening to it and allowing it to take go on and on to to its ultimate absurdity. It, it's funny and it's what's humorous. So you you know you can see the humor of selfishness and seriousness and taking oneself. You know, thinking about oneself and. And even one's magnanimity, and you can see this with uh, people in positions, wanting you know that have made some commitment to taking on responsibility, <clears throat> and the feeling of I'm not supported, you know, the, I'm not uh, I've made this strong commitment, but nobody seems to really come forth to help me and. And the, the whinging mind will want everybody else to appreciate or acknowledge or offer something through, because I've done this. Now thinking it out in this listening to to somebody speaking on the other side of the fence, just, you know, letting, deliberately, I'm intentionally thinking, but listening, the important Thing was listening, learning to listen to the whinging, grumbling, complaining conditions, the resentments, the fears. Now that's not. I'm not, and, and then not criticizing, not. Because there's an, you know, the magnanimous part of me says, oh, you shouldn't complain. You've got the Dhamma, you're, you know, you've been given so much 
and you, you know, you should be grateful, you've got roof over your head for the night, or food in your arms, bowl, robes, and medicine, and uh, you should just be grateful, and uh, it doesn't matter what other people think or what other people do, it's just, you know, get on with your practice and, and don't let the world upset you. But that's still, that's, you know, that's terribly good advice. But then, then the other side is, you know, I don't feel supported and people aren't doing what they should and I don't know, you know, people are criticizing me, complaining. So this is a complicated sense of, you know, this is, this is, these are the soap operas, the melodramas, the, the, the way we, the worlds that we create. By listening to them, both the kind of self-congratulatory style, you know, I've dedicated my life to the Dhamma, I'm totally committed and the kind of grand gestures to the, uh, you know, the whinging, complaining, nobody, nobody loves me. <laughs> nobody, nobody's willing to come forth and support me like I think they should and work my fingers to the bone and nobody seems to appreciate it. I want to go to my cave, be alone and Listen to the whole lot, and then that which listens, you see. This is uh, emphasizing the listening. Uh, listening then is opening, isn't it? To really listen, you're not listening, you know, your sense of listening, you can close your eyes, you don't have to see anything, you can be in a dark room. You can be in any posture, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, standing on your head, sweeping the... Uh, the floor, washing the dishes, listening. This sense of listening is is one that we, you know, is is available all the time. So, listening to somebody else talking, or listening to the, the uh, oneself grumbling or complaining, or boasting, or worrying or resenting. That's listening. You see, listening, and I found this very, helped me to really put the Sakyaditi uh, fetter into that perspective. Because the, you know, the conflict between the magnanimous Sumato that dedicates his life to the Dhamma, paying a debt to the great teacher, the grand gesture, the grand view, and then the then the self-pitying, whinging little tomato. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I want to go to my cave. <laughs> now that. Listening then doesn't isn't taking sides. Now the grand gesture says, "Don't be a whinge, don't be a wimp." You know, you should. It's all full of shoulds. You know, you should. Doesn't matter what other people think. Just get on with your life and practice. And terribly good advice. <clears throat> then, then uh, the whinging little tomato. Oh, I, Another problem, they, somebody doesn't like the way I, what I said at that meeting and they're upset. I've upset them because I didn't say, I didn't mention their name or something. And I made a mistake. And, uh, oh, I don't want to be bothered with this, these boring meetings and all these complicated people and let me out of here. 
But in listening, then it's it's uh, stopping the 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 grand gesture, the super ego, from condemning the whinging, uh, self-pitying tomato. Listening to both equally, you know, that's a training of awareness, of openness, welcoming, non-judgment. It's discerning, though. This is why this word discernment. Michael, why I translate panya, the word panya is discerning. It sees things for what they are, you know, it's not a critical function. It's not the, like, you shouldn't complain, you should be grateful for your requisites. That's the, that's the grand view from the top. That's how life should be. The reality of this moment on a personal level, what is it like? How do I feel personally, emotionally, is like this. How do you reconcile those two when, when they're going on at the same time? When you think about them, then you end up taking sides. Of course, you know, the the grand one is what should be. But then it tends to despise and feel contempt and put down and criticize the the complaining, self-pitying tomato. Don't be disgusting. Don't be a, so immature. You're selfish. You're being selfish. That's the, you know, from the top level. And then the other, the, the crybaby, is, you know, then feels, oh, you just suppress it. You don't listen to it, you suppress it. So the only way out of this is, is by listening, noticing it, both equally, so that they both are sankharas, Anicca, Anatta, they are what they are though. The grand gestures like this, the the self pities like this, but they're changing and you're noticing your emphasis is on changing, allowing them to be the way they are, other than where when you criticize them then then you're not really accepting them, you're trying to control them make them something else. So you, this is an act of trust, of listening. And it's humbling because, uh, you know, conceit becomes very conscious. One's conceit, one's self-importance, one's, and one's weaknesses and fears and lack of confidence and become conscious. But the refuge then is in the awareness, not in the condition. So in this awareness, then then um, we have this perspective. So in the, as I experience it with listening, this resonating vibration I call sound of silence, It's where listening is that it's kind of, it, you can't get beyond it. It's, it's the center point. The point that includes everything. It includes the grand, magnanimous, and the whinging, weak, weakling. See, so it, it doesn't exclude and it doesn't divide. No, it's a, you know, it doesn't prefer. The Krishnamurti calls this choiceless awareness. But it discerns, you know, it's not 
it's not approving or disapproving. It's outside that whole whole realm of liking, disliking, approving and disapproving. But it's discerning the nature of sankharas. In that discerning, it's not a division because it's not it's not a thought. It's it's just a, being able to allow things to be as they are. So this sense of even me discerning or discerning as some separate activity that di- that dissolves too into just the reality of being. of oneness, unity, perfection, completeness. So in this stillness, this listening, and even the way I attach to the convention can be witnessed non-critically. Because when you ordain as a monk and you practice the vinaya and things like this, then there's a there's a whole kind of self built around this. You know, there's a kind of conceit too that you can create about being a you know, a forest monk, one who keeps the vineyard, one who doesn't touch money. So that that I noticed that in the the way I, I learned Divinia tended to be, make me, would tend to reinforce this sense of I'm, I'm better monk than one who handled money. So, in, you know, in Thailand, you know, it's very strict there in Ajahn Chah's monastery. So then, um, then the monks in the, in the town monasteries all handled money, most of them. So we tended to look down on them, and they used to. It used to be this color coding, you know, the the bright orange robe. As soon as I saw a bright orange robe come in the monastery, I think there's a monk that handles money. <laughs> and as soon as you see a monk wearing this this kind of dun-colored, forest-colored robe, you think that is probably a serious monk. Keeps the vinaya, and so that the, the, you know the, even the the being strict and uh, and all that can be uh, can take it on 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 the ego level, which makes one into into kind of a snob or feelings of superiority or contempt. One can look at monks, you know, that carry money and that drink Ovaltine in the evening and Look at those, they're bad monks. So this is listening to this, to conceit. So even the, the way we use the, the vinya is no longer, uh, you know, be, being strict and pure and all that, is no longer taken in this personal way. It's for awareness, developing awareness, not for, you know, making one feeding one's ego and thinking that I'm I'm better monk than than another somebody else. But that's how conditioning works. If you just grasp the conventions of Buddhism it it uh, really you know it uh, you know, you're still, you know, if you, if that's all you're doing, even they're very good conventions, so at least maybe it's better grasping the conventions than grasping things that aren't very good. 
you know, so it's, I'm not even suggesting that, you know, you shouldn't grasp the conventions, but, but the awareness, the point of the conventions of the Dhamma Vinaya in the conventional form is for awareness, for liberation, not for, uh, not for create, adding more to the ego or more divisiveness or more sense of duties and responsibilities and complications. One can look at the Vinaya as very complicated. Whereas a lay person, you know, if you don't even, I mean, lay people find it difficult to keep five precepts. You ask lay people how many precepts they keep, and they say, well, three most of the time. I don't kill people. <laughs> but the third one, about, you know, being responsible for sexual activity, that's or the, or the fifth one. Well, I do have, I like wine with my food. And I have a beer at the pub, things like that. <laughs> they, you know, so there's this sense of, uh, you know, maybe we don't kill and we don't lie. And then the fourth one, also difficult, is about speech. Gossip and using speech. That's even for monks and nuns. That's a, a difficult one. <clears throat> but then you've got 227 rules in the Padimoka, and plus all the others, and on and on like this. It sounds complicated, but then the you know on that level of condition, it is it tends to be complicated. But what the point of it is is awareness, being mindful. It had the like precepts have this ability. They they remind us. They're they're you know when you're tr- training with the precepts, they have because you are committing yourself to living with these precepts. Then they have an effect on conscious experience, and you notice that you you have boundaries for action, speech, and behavior. And you have monastic style, monastic rules that lay people don't have. So these do affect conscious experience. And the point is then is to observe that. It's like this. If it, you know, you can begin to know the difference when it, when it's egotistical, it's compulsive, it's based on fear and opinions and views and attachments and when it's awareness of time, place, state of mind, the present reality, the present condition. So ultimately, it, if, you know, it's ultimate simplicity. Like I find the simplicity of here and now, where the, the, the sense of an ego is seen, you know, understood, known. It's, you know, it's not that I don't, have egotistical thoughts or memories or things like this, but they're recognized, the awareness of them. Not a criticism, but an awareness of emotional karma when conditions arise and threatening things happen or, uh, you know, unpleasant crises and difficulties. <coughs> The emotions that arise are seen from this, are listened to, aware, because this awareness is a refuge. It's the, it's the stability, it's the, the still point of the turning wheel. 
So even contemplating, you know, like self-views uh, on the grand level of we're all equal, we're all the same. There's no, you know, superior or inferior human <clears throat> beings. We're all the same. That's the magnanimous ideal, you know. Then, then there's the snooty one, I'm better than you are. Or racial superiority or gender superiority, whatever, you know, we're better or we're civilized, we're advanced, we're educated, we're very strict with the rules, we don't touch money. Or the inferior one, I'm no good, I'm not as good as you are, I'm just a loser in life. So these, you know, whatever, whatever self you create, whether it's a, the grand gesture, the ideal, the, the snooty, or the inferior, when you really see them, listen to them, and know them, then you realize they're all, you know, being superior is not liberation. Feeling better than somebody else is not a liberating experience. You know, trying to be the best, trying to be the best and prove you're better than everyone else. That's not, that's still dukkha when you look at it, when you observe, when you listen to this sense of I'm, I'm a much better monk than, than you are <clears throat> kind of feeling. It's not a peaceful feeling. Or I'm not a very good monk. Or, we're all equally good monks. <laughs> you know, the, the town monks, the orange robe monks, the forest monks, the Mahayana monks, the Vajrayana monks, and nuns, and everybody, <laughs> and lay people, and all, and it's a kind of grand gesture of, you know, there's no no superiority, inferiority, nothing whatsoever. The grand gesture is is totally egalitarian. Is is very idealistic, but even that, you know, is grasping that is a position to take. Because on the level of experience, isn't it? There's things are changing. Sankaras are forever changing. They're, they're never the same. Nothing's ever equal. Everything's in this continuous, incessant, relentless changing from birth to death. So where's the where's the egalitarian? Where is it the same? You know, is birth the same as death? Beginning the same as ending? You know, you can you know, on an intellectual level, you can kind of convince yourself that it's all the same, but the reality of it is it's different. It's all differences. Because sankharas are like that. They're all about good and bad, right and wrong, high and low, strict and lax, and what should and what shouldn't be, and peace and war. <clears throat> Grand gestures and self-pitying, the, the conditioned realm is, is, you know, these are the conditions changing from, from the top to the bottom. And then the awareness is the liberation from, from that trap of being caught in that incessant, relentless changingness that is suffering because it, it's ceaseless. It just goes on and on. It, when once you're caught into that sangsaric cycles of sangsara, just you just go around and around and around. There's no way out of that cycle, cyclical change, because that's the way it is unless we're aware of it. So awareness then is the only possibility of liberation from these from the sankharas. So what is their need to control or 
fear, once you realize this, because the oneness then is, uh, embraces the dualism. It's not an annihilating it. It's not disparaging it. It, it. it includes the dualism. So the aim then is to be the oneness rather than be caught, endlessly caught up into the dualistic changing conditions of sankhara or what they call sangsara. So the word nibbana then is this oneness where the sangsara operates, you know, still it goes on, it's still the thoughts arise, the world happens the way it is, sometimes it's pleasant, unpleasant, right, wrong, peaceful, warlike. But we, we see it in terms of discernment and in the compassion the, the Brahma Viharas then manifest from this, from this emptiness, from this oneness. It's not a, you know, it's where then goodness and compassion, loving kindness can, can manifest, not from a self, not from an idea on a personal level, but because that's the way it is. that love, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These are the natural uh, responses to the conditioned realm.